We're continuing in our summer series, Christ Encounters, and as we continue, today we're starting a, a new category uh, under that overall series, and we're, we're going to be talking today and for the next few weeks about the religious and the rich and their encounters with Christ. And as we start that new category today and we, we talk about Simon the Pharisee, we're going to see Jesus in an unexpected place yet again. Uh, he's actually received what would be to us and certainly to many around him in his inner circle an unexpected dinner invitation. And so we find him once again eating dinner with someone that others probably are surprised by the fact that he's doing that. And through the Gospels and through the encounters of Christ, you really see that theme. You see that many, many times Christ's one-on-one and most personal encounters are in the context of a dinner, sharing a meal, fellowship with someone in an intimate type gathering. And the reason, of course, is because you're able to get to know someone a whole lot better in that situation, in that environment, than you would in a larger gathering. The guards come down. You're more comfortable. And so Jesus was very deliberate in making sure he filled his time and his calendar, not just with public ministry and and big events, but those small one-on-one or or very small uh, number gatherings. And so last week, we found him at the end of his amazing encounter with Zacchaeus. To everyone's shock and to everyone's dismay, we saw him in the home of none other than Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. And there were groans and grumblings and dropped jaws as he went to that home and ate dinner with Zacchaeus. But it resulted, as we saw last week, with a dramatic, unmistakable, miraculous life change in Zacchaeus. Before that, uh, earlier in our series, we looked at the call of Matthew, who was another tax collector. And as Jesus called him to serve him and, and Matthew left everything, what happened? Jesus went to the home of Matthew, and all kinds of other, quote, sinners were there too. Now, we see the tables turned, and we're going to see that Jesus is in the home of one of the type of people that complained probably the loudest about him being in the home of people like Matthew and Zacchaeus. So it's a really interesting irony here that we see. And let's jump in and see exactly what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 is where we're going to start. We'll be looking at verses 36 to 47. Luke chapter 7 and beginning in verse 36. God's Word says this, One of the Pharisees invited him, Jesus, to eat with him. Jesus accepted says that. Next, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. I I personally would like to experience that, you know, just reclining at the table to eat. I think there'd be something nice about that instead of sitting up straight in a chair. But this is how they, you know, they did it in in this culture in this time. And still uh, in this culture around the, in this part of the world, that's still uh, many times what you'll find uh, if you go into someone's home. They recline at the table to eat. That's the scene. So he's reclining at the table in verse 37. And a woman in the town who was not invited to this dinner 
We have an unexpected invitation to Jesus. Now we have an unexpected or uninvited guest. A woman in the town who was a sinner, and that's literally an immoral woman. So it could be that she was actually a prostitute. It could be that she was a woman that, uh, like the woman at the well, just made immoral choices consistently and was known, had a reputation. Don't know for sure. Uh, No real reason to speculate. What we do know, though, is that she was a woman identified, known to be an immoral person and a sinner in very specific physical type ways. So, a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, which would have been very, very expensive. Verse 38, and with that, here's what she does. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, in other words, he he thought it internally, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Well, Obviously, as we are going to find here in just a little bit, Jesus did know very well who this woman was, who and what she was. But the fact that this woman found out where Jesus was, doesn't that tell us something? It tells us she was looking for Him. And the fact that she, when she found Him, wasn't intimidated at all by the fact that he was with this Pharisee, the one who would judge her more than anyone else, that that didn't stop her. That meant that there was already a very real, deep, personal love and appreciation for Jesus that would drive her into the home of this Pharisee at probably great personal cost to to herself. At least that's a possibility. didn't matter that she would barge into the home of which would have been a very elaborate home of this Pharisee. didn't matter to her. She went in right where he was. She had been looking for him. Asked around, hey, have you seen Jesus? Hey, do you know where the one from Nazareth is? Do you know where the rabbi is? And slowly and surely she got the information and that's where she went. And when she comes in, she doesn't waste any time praising and honoring and adoring and worshiping Him and just crying, weeping, it says. Why? It's because likely she had already encountered Jesus. She had already met Him, most likely. She had already received forgiveness and grace instead of wrath and judgment. Love and acceptance instead of rejection and ridicule. And she was probably so overwhelmed and changed by that already occurring encounter that she just had to get where Jesus was. 
And she just had to show him some sort of gratitude and express how much she had been changed by him. It's probably what was going on in the, in the back story that we're not told here. But that's not really the center of this story and of this encounter. She's actually going to be used by Jesus really as an object lesson for Simon to teach and reach him and to give him an unexpected lesson. So really the the focus of this story and of this encounter is on the Pharisee himself, on the person that invited Jesus and was now aghast at this woman being here and doing what she was. And more shocked was Simon at the fact that Jesus was allowing it. And the reason is because, of course, of what and who Simon was. He says, if Jesus knew who and what kind of woman this is, well, it's because of who and what kind of man Simon was that he had that reaction and that he thought that in himself. The word Pharisee, we know that well, but that word means separatist. That's what Pharisee literally meant, separatist, or one who is separate. And the Pharisees of the first century were definitely that. They definitely fit that description. They were ultra-holier-than-thou types. They majored on the minor technical parts of the law, and they even added to what was already established at the law, coming up with hundreds of more aspects and details of an already very extensive law. And they, they were so careful to observe every aspect of the law down to the smallest part, but they were blind to the larger issues, especially when it came to things like love and compassion, things like humility and grace. And that's a really tragic thing. Because what they failed to realize is that a holier-than-thou attitude has nothing to do with holiness. A holier-than-thou attitude, church, Christian, everybody listen, everybody hear this. A holier-than-thou attitude has nothing to do with holiness. Not Christ-like holiness. Not sincere holiness. A holier-than-thou attitude, a superior mindset, has no place in real holiness. Because true holiness, true holiness affects our actions and our attitudes. And that's something that Simon and all the other Pharisees just did not get. They didn't grasp. They were really, really careful to make sure the outward part, the external part was right. That they were holy externally, but they didn't really do much about the internal part of themselves. The internal attitudes. The attitudes of superiority. The attitudes of arrogance. There was nothing done about that. And true holiness will seep down deep into the inner person and it will affect our attitudes. How we think. How we view people. How we treat people. It won't just affect the external appearance. It'll it'll go deeper than that. It'll affect the internal. And Simon here, Simon dismissed Jesus because in his mind... Jesus wasn't seeing past the woman's actions to her true heart. 
That's why he said if, if he were a prophet, he would really understand who this woman really is. He can't be a prophet because all, all he's seeing is what she's doing in, in this show of, of worship to him. But if he were really a prophet, he would see past what she's doing now and he would see down into her heart that she's just a vile, corrupt sinner. But the irony, I hope you see the irony here. The irony is that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was viewing the true heart of this person. And that's what he was doing with Simon as well. He was viewing down deep into the true heart of Simon, just as Simon was thinking he really should be viewing down deep into the true heart of this awful woman. We're going to see that right now in the next section in this passage. Verses 40 through 47. Look at that with me. So Simon thought to himself, oh, he can't be a prophet. If he were, he would know who this woman is that's touching him. Verse 40 Jesus replied to him, replied to his thoughts Simon, I have something to say to you, he said. Say it, teacher. I, I imagine Simon's cheeks reddening and maybe his eyes widening. Uh, uh, sure, please, go ahead. Say it. Verse 41. A creditor had two debtors. See, this was often Jesus' way. He would teach through telling a story. He would give a point by coming up with, with a story that uh, would grab someone's attention and with a point that they couldn't miss. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which was about two years' worth of wages. Pretty significant amount of money. And the other, 50 denarii, about two months' worth of wages. So, not a small amount, but compared to the other, a much, much smaller amount was owed. You see the point there. Two years' worth versus two months' worth. Two debtors, both owed money, different amounts. In verse 42, since they, they, not one, but they, together, could not pay it back, he, the debtor, graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose... The one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. And on that answer, because he recognized the truth there of that story, he recognized the answer and he recognized the point, he now brought himself under being responsible in the same way. Verse 44, the meaning becomes clear. The meaning of this story and his reply to Simon's thoughts. Verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, which was the absolute, normal, customary thing to do for a guest in your home. It showed honor to the guest that was in your home. And Simon would have known this. He, 
any time he would have had anyone else in his home, all of his servants would have had water ready to wash the feet of the person that entered the house. I mean, of all people, as strict to the observance of custom and ritual and law as Simon was, certainly he would have made very, very sure that that was done to anybody else. And so the fact that that wasn't done for Jesus shows us that he didn't really honor Jesus. And that's not why he had Jesus in his home. There had to have been an ulterior motive. It was probably to really try to find out who this guy really was. What was really going on with this rabbi? Who did he really think he was? Maybe it was to try to trap him like other Pharisees did and then run and and give uh, evidence of something to the Sanhedrin. I don't know. But it's obvious that he didn't really think a whole lot of Jesus. Because Jesus says, you gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. And the contrast continues. You gave me no kiss, which was another customary thing to do and still is in Middle Eastern culture. You, you, you greet them with a, a, a kiss of, of honor and, and of saying, I'm glad you're here. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil. The custom continues. Normally, that's what was expected. But she has anointed my feet with perfume. Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been. Notice the have been. They've already been forgiven. It's not because of what she's doing that caused her sins to be forgiven. It's because her sins were already forgiven that she is doing these acts of love and adoration and worship, which we know from the next statement. That's why she loved much. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. That's why she's lavishing all these things on me, Simon. The things that you didn't do. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Now, to be clear, Jesus' statements here, it was all about perception. What he was saying to Simon was one who perceives himself to be forgiven little will show very little love in response, very little gratitude, very little worship in response. He's not saying that there's different degrees of forgiveness. He's saying it's all about what you recognize. Do you recognize yourself as being one in in great need of forgiveness? Wow, I, I have so much sin in my own life. I need to be forgiven. I have a lot to be forgiven of. Or do you perceive yourself to be one who really isn't that bad off? Hasn't really done that much bad sin I don't really think there's that much I need to be forgiven of. I think I'm okay. That's what he was really driving home here. That's what he was trying to get Simon to recognize. It's all about perception, self-perception, self-realization. Simon only saw the woman as she had been, 
before she encountered Christ. Not as she now was because of Him. But in contrast, Jesus didn't see the woman as she had been, but only as she now was because of Him. Isn't that great? And that's really good news for us, my fellow Christians. That's really, really good news for us. Because just as Jesus didn't see this woman's past before Him and only saw her present because of Him, the same is true for you and me. Hallelujah! If you're in Christ, the same is true for you and me. That's how Jesus views us. So it's really good news for us. But here's the question. I need everybody to to really hear me on this. Here's the question we need to ask. Do we do that with others? The way Jesus looks at us, the way He views us, and, and how He treats us, not according to our past before Him, but according to who we are in Him and because of Him now after our encounter with Him, do we do the same? Do we do that with other people? How do we usually see other people? How do we see others? John Newton said, he's the one who famously penned Amazing Grace. His story is incredible. and It's an incredible story of Amazing Grace. He was a slave ship captain and a trader in the awful, horrible slave trade of the 19th century for England and Europe. He was a vile, vile, wicked person before his encounter with Christ. And then he was never the same. Became a pastor and writer. John Newton said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. Is that true of you today? Is that true of you? If so, then praise God, because that didn't come from you. But beyond praising God for that, be willing to see others in the same light. Be willing to extend to others the same grace you have been extended. Simon, the Pharisee, saw himself as completely righteous because he was completely compliant with the system of rituals and regulations. But... Jesus saw past all that. He saw past all that external ritual and external compliance. He saw Simon's true heart, which was unfortunately a heart full of sinful self-righteousness and pride. See, Jesus saw in Simon a man that was in just as much need of repentance as the woman he had judged and despised. Jesus sees our true heart. He sees the depths of our hearts. We can't fool Him. We can't pull one over His eyes. We can't disguise our hearts. He sees it. All of it. All of it. He sees it all. And the sad reality, the sad reality was that Simon was pursuing a man-made code of morality 
instead of pursuing God's Messiah that was right there in front of him. Isn't that tragic? He had the Messiah, the promised one, right there in his dining room. But instead of pursuing him, he was pursuing an empty, very weighty code and system. He looked to the law to free him, but the law only held him down. And that's what the law will always do. That's what it only does. It keeps captive. It doesn't free. And so he was being allegiant to and loyal to this thing that he was looking to free him that only held him captive when the one right there that he missed could have freed him. So I ask you, what are you pursuing today? You, you personally. What are you pursuing right now in your life? Are you pursuing some system of rules and regulations and outward external compliance with some human standard of morality? Or are you pursuing God's Messiah, the only one who can free you? It's a question worth asking. And unfortunately, as I said, Simon was not pursuing him at all. And therefore, because of that, he was much farther than God than the sinful woman was. Simon, the, quote, righteous Pharisee, in a sad, tragic irony, was much, much farther from God than the sinful woman he judged was. What was true of Simon was true of, unfortunately, just about all of the Pharisees. And Simon certainly fit this scathing judgment that Jesus gave in another encounter, another group of Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. It's recorded in Matthew 15, 7-9, and I just want to read this to you because it, it so encapsulates what Simon was. It, it so describes who he was and what he showed himself to be here in this moment as he was passing this judgment on this woman and elevating himself in his own heart. Matthew 15, 7-9, Jesus said, Hypocrites! Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, and he's, he's speaking for God in this statement. It's really what God had to say about the uh, religious leaders of, of Isaiah's day. Isaiah says this, and God's heart cried this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. And that was true of Simon. Certainly was true of the other Pharisees. And unfortunately, oh, Christian, unfortunately, sadly, it didn't die out with the first century. It didn't end with the organization of the Pharisee community. Unfortunately, we as Christians, we are just as prone and susceptible to this pharisaical way of living and way of viewing other people. 
we can so easily fall into the same trap of going through the motions of, of honoring God with our lips and with our mouth and singing these wonderful praise songs and saying all the right things, all the while our heart being far from God. We are just as susceptible to it. It's just as much something that we need to be on guard against because all of our hearts are by default and by nature bent towards being like a Pharisee. It's bent towards legalism. We like the law. We, we go towards the law in our, in our natural being. And we all are really good at being very judgmental about other people and comparing ourselves, Looking at our own life and viewing our own righteousness compared to others. We can all fall into this same trap. The Pharisees considered their salvation automatic because they were loyal to the law. And so they saw no need for a personal Savior because according to their standards, their standards, they were already righteous. And that's the problem with so many people in their resistance to coming to Christ. Haven't you talked with someone and you've tried to share the gospel that has changed your life? You've, you've tried to share that with them and their need for it. And no matter what you say and how you say it, it's just you're not getting through. You're not getting anywhere. And you ask yourself maybe, what's this wall that's up? Why is there this wall between me and this person, between the gospel I'm saying and them receiving it? Well, a lot of times, and especially in, in our culture today, it's because of this fact. And by culture, I mean our specific, our immediate culture, our Appalachian culture. Because this culture is a very traditional and very religious culture. And what religion does is it convinces the religious person that they're really okay. Because... After all, they're religious. They do what they're supposed to do. They check the boxes. They match up to the regulations. They participate in the ritual, which is what you're doing right now. Now, I hope, and to be fair to you, I hope it's much more than that. I hope that you're not just coming here out of some sort of ritual obligation, and most of you, I know that's true. But you get my point that our our buildings our buildings are full every weekend with people who unfortunately that's all it is it's a ritual it's tradition it's what you're supposed to do it's what being a good west virginian is all about right And so many people even, even don't include the organized and, and physical ritual of church attendance as necessary because they view their own morality to the point it's way up here and so they don't even need to go to church because after all, church is full of hypocrites, isn't it? So there's so many people that convince themselves one way or another that they're okay. I'm a good person. Pay my taxes. I've 
provided for my family. I've never missed a day of work. I haven't slept around. I, I do this and do this and do this, and I don't do that and that and that. And so we all, as human beings, can base our own morality and our own righteous standards on ourselves and on other people, comparing to other people, instead of viewing ourselves through the only lens that matters and comparing ourselves to the only standard that matters, which is God's standard. His righteousness. His holiness. That's the bar. And if we look at any other bar of measurement, we're looking in the wrong place and we're not really being accurate in how we view ourselves. And so the problem with that thinking, that fallacy, and the problem with Simon's and the other Pharisees in thinking that they were all right because they were already righteous and so their salvation was a done deal, they didn't need this personal Savior. They didn't have a need for that. The problem with thinking that way for them and anyone else in any age and any time, the problem is that Jesus came to save us from our sin and our self-righteousness. And I say problem because it's a problem for that kind of thinking. It's not a problem at all. It's, it's the good news. But if you don't see your need to be saved from your self-righteousness as well as your sin, then it's a big problem for you. And it's a problem you're not going to be able to get over. You know, you can recognize sin as bad, But if you don't recognize self-righteousness as just as much of a problem, then you're going to have a problem in seeing your need for Jesus. You with me on that? See, Jesus came to save us from our sin and our self-righteousness because one is a fact, an undisputable fact, sin. And the other, the other is an illusion, a mirage, Because there's no such thing as self-righteousness. There really isn't. No one is self-righteous or self-sufficient in righteousness. One is a fact, sin. The other is an illusion, self-righteousness. And both, both keep you from God. Both keep you from God. That's why Jesus came to save us from both. But, as true as that is, people have to realize they're drowning before they will reach for the raft. People have to realize they're drowning before they'll reach for a raft. You know, and so much of the time, our world and humanity in general is like people that are drowning in the ocean and they're splashing around and someone's calling to them, here, grab the raft, I'm throwing it to you. But instead of reaching for it and, and saying, thank you, thank you, they say, what, what raft? Why do I need a raft? I don't need a raft. That's unfortunately many, many people's position. People have to realize they're drowning before they'll reach for the raft. And here's the other thing that Simon needed to realize, and everyone, all of us needs to realize, it's that no one forgiven by God is forgiven little. 
No one forgiven by God is forgiven little. Simon loved very little because he felt very little need to be forgiven. And sometimes that's true of us as well. But no one forgiven by God is forgiven little. No, everyone God forgives is forgiven much at immeasurable cost and sacrifice. Romans 3.23 says, All, all have sinned and fallen short or come up short against or compared with the glory of God. That's the standard. We all come up short. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's that cost part. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We were forgiven much, church, at immeasurable cost and immeasurable sacrifice. So what, though? So what? Okay, so, so all that's true. You've heard all that. You agree with it. So what? What should we do with all that? That's the question. All of this that we've, we've covered today, this encounter with Simon the Pharisee and what it's shown us and what it's taught us, what the woman showed him and taught him and should teach us, what do we do with all of it? Well, Once we receive Christ's righteousness, which I hope and pray all of you have, and and I know most, if not all of you have today, once we, together, once we receive Christ's righteousness, here's what we should do with that. We should never forget our own unrighteousness apart from Him. One more quote from John Newton. This was at the end of his life. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. We need to agree with him. We need to remember that. We need to remember that it's only the saving grace of Jesus that gives us right standing with God. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace, undeserved, for by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. No one can say, look at me, I'm fine. I don't need Jesus. I don't need a personal Savior. I don't need, need, need anything beyond myself. No, no one can say that. And that, my friends, that should rid us. The Gospel, really, truly understanding the Gospel, all of it, that should rid us of any sense of false superiority. And it should fill us with the same kind of overwhelming love and worship that we saw with a forgiven woman. May it be true of us. May it mark our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for allowing us to see these incredible encounters with, that Jesus had with so many different people. We've, we've covered so much ground 
throughout this summer already to this point. So many different people that Jesus has reached and encountered and drawn to Himself. And all despite all their different backgrounds and places in society and ways of looking at things, they all had the same thing in common, and that's that they needed Jesus. They needed to encounter the living Savior. The only Messiah. They needed Him. And so you drew them to Him. And as a result of their personal encounters, they were changed. Unfortunately, as far as we know, Simon's encounter as being part of the religious and the rich community, it did not leave him changed. Sadly, he missed it. He missed the point of his encounter. Help us not to miss ours. Father, help us to encounter Jesus as He is, to see Him as He is, and to see our need for Him, and to not miss it, to not miss Him. Thank You that the woman obviously did not miss it. Her encounter did result in a life change. May it be true of us as well. And those of us who are changed by Jesus, help us not to view people any differently than how Jesus viewed us. For it is by grace we are saved. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.